made us reflect on great truths that I think are unbelievable for me anyway. So, yeah, I just want to pray. <laughs> but I'm going to read the passage and then pray. I'll hold off my uh, excitement for a second. <laughs> so uh, Ephesians chapter 2, if you've got a Bible, try and grab one, put it up on your phone, whatever you can do. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11, I'm going to read to the end of that chapter. My wife always says, wait so people can find the passage. I've waited. Here we go. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners in the covenant, to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's an amazing part of the Bible. We're going to pray together. Father, we thank you for the Bible and the way it points us to realities that we would have no capacity to understand without you. We ask now this evening that you will give us a miracle of understanding. That, Lord, as we listen to your word, that your spirit would move our hearts in a way where we, think, we encounter you, where there's something real about you that we all recognise is undeniable. And, Father, those of us here who wonder if you even exist, I ask that you would be drawing us to the reality of who you are through Jesus and what you offer everybody. Father, thank you for the people who are here now. We recognise that it just happens to be that we're all in this place in the same, at the same time. And Lord, I ask that there will be an encounter with you, with your word. And we thank you that you can change the possibility because of life with you. So we ask for your help tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start by letting you know we're in a series for three weeks on the church, what the church is, the nature of the church, what the church is about. When you try to find a passage of the Bible to to tell us about the church, you can't find just one. But the book of Ephesians is devoted to what the church is, what it's about. And my little theory of today is that there's nothing anyone can ever say that's better than what's in Ephesians. And so my goal will be to prove that to you. I'll say stuff. But it will prove the fact that you'll go, yeah, what Marty said is not as good as what's in Ephesians chapter 2. And it's amazing. 
Chapter 1 is amazing. Chapter 3 and 4, the guts of Ephesians, the last part of the book, we don't get to that. But this is the big picture ideas of what the church is. And I want to start with a cool thought experiment. Just imagine an alien showed up to Campbelltown for three weeks and you've got to describe what the church is to that alien being. It doesn't know anything about a religious institution at all. All it knows is some of the, the, the stuff we have going in the way we do life, but that's it. So what words would you use to describe the church to an alien? How would you describe it? Would you describe it as like a club? But, but instead of like shared interests like cooking or sport or, or art or craft, it's God. So you have your shared interests, you show up each week, do your thing, go home. Is church a club? Or would you describe the church as like a gym? You know, some sort of building you, you now and again show up to once a week, if you're really committed, three times a week, if you desire, every day of the week. <laughs> you pay your subscription, do your spiritual exercise, go home. Would you describe the church as a gym? Would you describe it as a shop? Where essentially you're going because you want a product. You want a service. And so you experience your service, you, you pay for your service, and then do your best to get out of the, stay out of the way of other shoppers or other worshippers on the way out. Would you describe the church as a shop? Would you describe the church as a corporation or an, like a business? After all, it's a big institution. It's large. It has a mission statement. It has staff, hierarchy, processes, goals. Would you call it a business? Instead of trying to make money, it's trying to make Christians. Would you call it a charity? Then instead of uh, practical objectives, it's more spiritual objectives. How you would describe the church is very telling. Those things, by the way, in our society are brilliant things. I'm not saying anything bad about them, but they are not the images the Bible uses to describe the church. And, and if you're a Christian, you've got to be very careful that the way we understand who we are as a church, what it means to be the church, that, that we get our our ideas from the Bible, that they're primarily influenced by that than the culture we live in. Because it's very easy for those concepts to creep into how we understand the church, but it's far more wonderful than that. So we're going to read through some of the powerful pictures in this passage to get a sense of the church. And the first, I think, obvious barrier to everyone in the room is that we live in the West. And so we are predominantly about us individually. You're about you. You've looked in the mirror more than most people on the planet today. You know, there's things about you that actually define how you interpret and hear things that are read. You can't help it. Have you ever like, tried to read the Bible and, and can't figure out why you can't get it to work in your life? Like you take that promise and say, God, okay, I'm ready. You know, do you think? You know, we take these verses out of the Bible and make them ours. Like, this is God's promise to me. And if you do that for long enough, you eventually realise it doesn't work. I think what we've done is changed the story of the Bible. We've corrupted the narrative of the Scriptures as if God is primarily speaking to me, to us, rather than to us corporately. The Bible first needs to be read not through the window of me, but we. The first verse says it's written to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. It's written to a people. Not a me. I'm a part of a we. When God makes a promise, it's not primarily to I, but it's to us first. And most so often in the New Testament, these letters, you flick through them. It's not just from a person to a people, often from a people. A group of people to a people like Paul and Timothy and Silas, 
write letters together as a team to the people. You know, God can work in your life and work through it, but it pales in comparison to what he can do if you will come together with others and allow God to work with you as you work with others. So it's not surprising that God often doesn't fulfill his promises in our lives because we want him to do for us what he'll only do for us. Does that make sense? The church is a picture of us, the people of God. So we need that, that background first. So the last four verses, let's quickly look at these amazing three images. These help you get the essence of, of where this passage takes us about the nature and the calling of the church. And so the first image, verse 19, I'll read it. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, right? So you're described as a fellow citizen, all right? Now, everyone's a citizen somewhere, like Australia, Hong Kong, London, Mumbai, wherever you live, you're a citizen on this planet. But Paul is saying there's a citizenship that supersedes that earthly one. Philippians 3 says we're citizens of heaven. So that's his first idea. You're a citizen of God's people. Second one is the same verse, he says, and also members of his household. That's a way of saying you're in God's family if you're a Christian. So that means God no longer is just your king or your boss, but he's your father. And you've been brought into a family where other people have God as their father, so you now have brothers and sisters. If you're a Christian, that's the nature of your reality. The third one, he goes on even beyond this and says, built on the foundation, verse 20, of the the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in, in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is an amazing image, this image that basically you're the building blocks, you're living bricks, living stones. It's said there you're built together. You're a place where God lives. You're like a temple. God inhabits by his Holy Spirit the way the Shekinah glory of God inhabited the Jewish temple. So there's our three images, citizens, family, holy temple. Now I want you to notice that's, a, that's an increase there's, there's actually like a cascade, things on top of one another. These images that help you to understand this, uh, this spectrum of closeness or intimacy. The first one, notice how each image increases in, if you're a Christian, your relationship to God. So the first one, you're, you're, you're a what? You're a citizen. So think a king lives in the same country as his citizens, yeah? First relationship. Goes up a level, he says, but he's also the father who lives in the same home as the brothers and sisters. That's closer. And then it goes even further with the temple picture. That actually God doesn't just live with you, near you, but inside you, inhabits you. See, how, see the increase of closeness, of intimacy between you and God? And the, the second way to look at it is between you and other people. Actually, could you put up the pictures, the next slide, that, to just go back to the first one. The first slide. So first slide, yeah, there's Australia. You understand the experience of being in the same country as other people. There's a social contract of what it means to be an Aussie. You, you experience with other people a citizenship as a Christian. But he says it's more than that. You're in the same family. So there's a picture now of a family. Awesome family, by the way. But the family on the next slide is an example of your now. There's, you, you, you experience far gra- Obviously, the DNA makes you close. And very sad picture of DNA spread there. <laughs> But you've also got your shared experiences, you, you've got life together, you, you, you know each other because you can't hide from each other. And the next image is of a temple. He says, you're the bricks. Go to the next image, mate. You're the bricks of 
of, of a building that are fitted. Literally, you're cemented together. I don't know if you can get closer than this. It's an amazing idea. I want you to notice the principle behind this is that the more powerful the force that has shaped your life, the more fitted you are to anyone else who's been shaped by that same power. The more powerful the force that has shaped you, the more ready you are to fit with someone else who's been shaped by that powerful force. So, so look at the bricks. They've been in an oven. They've been caked, baked. Look how well they fit together. You, you can meet a Christian on the other side of the globe from another culture, another generation, another language, and there's a bond that transcends all those superficial differences. And if you've ever connected to Christians as you've travelled in your life, people that are so superficially different, there's a bond there that's unique. This is, this is actually what the Bible says is true and possible. It's just are we willing to let it happen. Now, if you're, if you're here and not a follower of Christ, you may be wondering about what you just heard because we've essentially said, claimed, the Bible has claimed that the church is a home for God. And a home for people, but but it's a pretty huge claim to say God, this is a home for God. And you might think it's actually incredibly arrogant, because isn't that what the whole world fights about? We've got God, not you, you know, and He's in our temple, not your one. And if you're a Christian here, I want you to feel the weight of that, because that's a good challenge to have. What do you do about the challenge that the Christian faith says the church is the home for God, no other? How do you feel about that? Let, let me say something about it. Absolutely, there, I think there is a, a clear sense that there's an exclusivity to Christianity. There's a kind of exclusiveness there to say the church is a home for God. So I, I, I'm going to lay it out. I've said this before many times, but I don't believe all religions are the same or equally valid. Uh, my favourite piano teacher who I spent years with, her and I could, we had the type of friendship, we could talk about anything. We would talk about faith, life, family, whatever, and we could openly, lovingly disagree. She would say that every religion she thought was the same, that they're heading to the same place. And, and, and I would say, I just can't, I can't accept that because they're, they're, so, they're so not the same. And, and what's more, it's offensive to a Muslim to say, your faith is the same as a Buddhist faith. So you see, so... Um, being a Christian excludes being a Muslim in the same way that being a Muslim excludes being a Hindu. In fact, being a Christian excludes being atheist. So you, see, you can't be a Christian and not believe in God, but you also can't be a Christian and believe in thousands of gods. So Christianity is exclusive like every group is. Vegetarianism is exclusive. It excludes the eating of meat, Right? If you want to start a Wednesday night vegetarian vegan group and someone walks in with their meat lovers pizza, you're going to have to walk them out. <laughs> Sorry, we don't do that here. You don't understand us. So you see, Christianity is exclusive. All religions are not the same, but they're also not equally valid. And I think you will agree with me. The next image I have is an image uh, of an archaeology dig in Peru um, in August 2019. This dig uncovered a human grave of 227 children who, who were sacrificed to the gods. Only last year it was found to, to change the weather. 
That, that should be a problem to us. Listen to what one of the open um, mainstream news outlets said. Evidence of ritual human sacrifice has been uncovered all over the world, including in pre-modern Europe, the Middle East and Africa. The practice is specifically referred to and banned in the Hebrew Bible. I think it's a fascinating last sentence from a, a mainstream non-Christian outlet that they recognise not only there are complete obvious differences between various faiths, particularly Christianity, but actually that's not valid. Even our world would recognise that is not a valid form of worship to sacrifice a human being to change the weather. So I want to say to you that, that I think Christianity is the most inclusive type of exclusivity you can ever have because the temple image we just heard about is not... It's not restricted by race or gender or culture or social status, education, tribe, language, geography, anything, except trust in Jesus Christ. But that means the Bible says things like this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's like the Bible's way or God's way of saying, you don't deserve a relationship with me, you don't deserve forgiveness, you don't deserve me to overlook the stuff you've done, but if you ask me, if you trust me, I will embrace you, invite you to myself, welcome you to my kingdom, you'll be one of my people. So the Bible says if you look in the mirror and acknowledge that you, <clears throat> you're corrupt, you're selfish, you don't deserve a relationship with God, but if you ask for it, you get it. So the only thing you need to do is realise you don't deserve it and ask for it and you can have it. That's it. How amazing is that? It's not based on all those superficial differences between people. But as long as you think you don't need God, you don't need his forgiveness, that God should be privileged to know you, you don't get a relationship with God. But if you recognise you desperately need him and say, Jesus, I give you my life, you get him forever. I think that's amazing. That's an amazing thing. So verse 18 says, through Jesus we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. It's an amazing access. So the Spirit of God, if I believe in Jesus, connects me to God and all the others who are connected to God. And the bond that's talked about here is astonishing. We could be like cemented together like bricks. It's amazing. Co-citizens, same family, holy temple. Would you, would you agree that these images don't actually fit with coming to church once a month, even three times a month? I, I think it's very obvious that the idea of the church is far more provocative than sometimes that we, we engage with it. And, and so probably the easiest of those three images for us to explore for a moment is the one of family. Can I, can I get, if, if any brother's... Sisters, siblings are here in the same room. Just put your hand up for a sec. If you're in the same room as a sibling. Yeah, we've got a couple over here. A couple across the middle, yeah. <laughs> Punching each other. Oh, yeah, there's a number here. Like, it's really awesome. Like, think about the stuff that you have to share because you're, you just had your hand up with those people, right? You share stuff, maybe clothes, toothbrushes. <laughs> kind of like... <laughs> when you're desperate <laughs> uh, stuff, food, space smells 
You, you share so much, right? You know each other's flaws, each other's faults. Nothing is hidden, right? And I'm sure all of them will be very excited to tell you about their siblings' faults. Very excited. Listen to Hebrews chapter 3. It describes the relationship between Christians. It says, exhort one another daily. That means counsel one another every day so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is actually saying that there's parts of our lives, your life, that you don't notice. This may be hidden from you. And that God's intention is there's people who can talk to you about that. Not your big obvious problems and flaws and sins, but the stuff very few people notice. That the idea God intended, there can be conversations, spiritual conversations about the nature of how you do life, are very subtle things that are difficult to notice. And it's by people who have the same status as brother or sister. They're as close as a brother and sister could be because they see it. Is that happening much in your life? You've got to ask yourself, does that actually happen for you? By the way, social media doesn't allow that to happen. I can't read your face through Instagram. It's a great way to control what other people see about you or know about you. But that's the thing about a family. You cannot control what everyone else sees, can you? They see it all. So here's the thing. I think it's very clear. We just recognise that it's hard. It's hard actually to experience something that the Bible says is absolutely true. If you're a Christian, this is the nature of what God has created. It's already there. Will you become what you already are? And, And the cool thing about the Bible, it's so realistic. It just shows us why it's hard and what God's done about that problem. So there's two words in this passage. Or there's a word that shows up twice, the word hostility. This is not really obvious. I'll show you the word. Verse 14, it says, For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 16, he talks about it again and says, By which he put to death their hostility. The word literally means hate or enmity and malice. And there's this reality that the human heart is divided with this hostility that's inside it for others. But but the interesting thing It's hostility about what is different about us. That is usually our problem. So this section of the Bible, when you first heard it being read, it talked about circumcision and all this stuff. It's like like a case study. Here's an example to help you understand this issue. Don't get sidetracked by the Jewish-Gentile issue. It's just a case study to show us the bigger issues for us. So he's, he's talking about, I'll read first three verses between Jews and the rest of the world. Gentiles are any non-Jew, right? That's their word for that. So Jews and Gentiles. Listen to this. Verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that's the Jews, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And the next verse says, what's the issue? There's a dividing wall of hostility. What is the dividing wall? Next verse, verse 15, he says, by setting aside in his flesh the law with with its commandments and regulations, he somehow made the two one. So what we're told there is the wall of hostility was the regulation and commandments that God had given his people, the law. 
That's bizarre. How could the law be responsible for the divide between people, for the hostility between people? Think about the law, the Ten Commandments. It's a good thing. Honour your mum and dad. Don't murder, don't lie, don't steal, don't envy, don't commit adultery. Those things are brilliant things. That's good. And the Bible affirms that the law is good. How could that be responsible for the hostility? See, the Jews were given the law so that the rest of the world could see when they live, they're a society of justice and love, holiness and truth and be drawn to who God is. This was God's intention that the world would see who he is through the ways people live. It's an astonishing idea. So the Bible says the law is a good thing, but how does it get distorted? Well, the thing is, the Jews ended up hating every non-Jew, pretty much. You know, they, no one else is kosher. No one else eats like the right way, does, lives the right way. They saw everyone else as profane, unclean, unwashed. There's a famous uh, prayer in the Gospel of Luke. It's, it's an it's a upright, moral, Jewish-like rabbi. And, and he says, Lord, thank you that I'm not like those robbers, those adulterers, those tax collectors. So you can hear the superiority in that, isn't it? So they despise any non-Jew because of the law. And, and any non-Jews hated them back. The principle is the things that divide us actually are the good things about us. So the law became a source of pride and joy for the Jews. And so what the human heart does, it actually takes the things about us that are good, like our virtues, and becomes so proud of them that it uses them to strengthen our self-esteem by despising anyone who's not like us, who hasn't got what we got. That's how the heart works. Whatever the difference, even something as good as the law. So being rich, it's not, it's not just awesome to be rich, it's that you're richer than the next guy. Or being beautiful or smart or talented. It's not just that you're proud about that, it's that you're smarter than the next guy. That's how our heart works. And, and you start to see how it works in the world when you see different cultures collide. You know, they say one of the easiest, there's, there's tw- over 20 different ways you can look at the differences between cultures, and one of the obvious ones is how they define late. I don't think I'm Western. But how people define late in different cultures is remarkably different. Some cultures, you could be five, maybe 15 minutes late, and you feel the need to apologise. Some cultures, it's not till you're two hours late that you need to apologise. The weird thing is, so, so they say some people define things by event, some cultures define things by the time, but the, you get what I mean, right? The weird thing is when they, they often collide, you usually don't hear people saying, oh, wow, they're different from me. No, what we do as humans is we moralise our virtues, our differences, and say, oh, they're, you know, those people who, are, who just don't care about time, they're so unthoughtful, they're so irresponsible, they're so unpunctual. And they say the same back. They say, those people, they're so up themselves, they're so cold, they're so, they're so unloving, and they're both wrong. That's what we do as humans. We, we do it with our political persuasions. You know, if, if your approach politically is actually a part of how you get a sense of self and worth, you can't just disagree with someone. You have to hate and despise them. Some people have... Uh, very strong work ethics, which is awesome. But when that's a part of your identity, 
You can't just see a lazy person and go, oh, there's a lazy person. You're incensed that they're lazy. That's a signal to you that this means more than what it, what it maybe needs to. So here's the amazing thing about the gospel. What God does about this hostility is amazing. There's two things he does. Number one, he says, those who are near and those who are far from God, those who are moral and those who are immoral, they're both lost, they both need God, they're both spiritually equal. It's an amazing idea. So verse 13, he says, those of you who were once far away, that's all of you. Any Jewish people here? No. So all of us were once far away, verse 13 says. Why? Well, we didn't grow up culturally with the scriptures the same way the Jews have. That means we didn't know God in the same way they did. That means we were living in immoral lifestyles or relationships in comparison where the Jews... They had the scriptures, they had the law, they knew the attributes of God. So what Paul's saying is they were near, you were far. But listen to what he said, verse verse 14, no, verse 16, it says Jesus came to reconcile them both to God. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Both of you, both groups of people desperately need God. So the gospel says everyone has hostility sitting between them and God and peace needs to be made. The second part of the gospel is it affirms you. Verse 16 says on the cross God put to death their hostility. The words literally say he slew the hate. How did God slew the hate? The only thing that died on the cross was Jesus. See 2 Corinthians 5 says God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so we could become the righteousness of God. In in other words, God made Jesus to be sin, not sinful, but to be sin. On the cross, Jesus didn't become hostile, he became hostility. And so what this means is God treated Jesus the same way racism should have been treated, the same way violence should have been treated, the same way hate, the same way selfishness and sin, the same way I should have been treated. So that when I trust in Jesus, I get the privilege of being treated like Jesus deserved. That's a gift, guys. That's a gift. No, I don't deserve that. You don't deserve that. So what the gospel is, is we receive it. Didn't have to earn it. And what that does, that takes away that comparison, they say, comparison apparatus inside us. The need to compare yourself to someone else to feel okay. I don't need that anymore. I usually put myself down up here, but like one, one good moment in my life, years ago, one of my youth uh, uh, kids in a, in a church, I, I was at before this, years ago, um, I used to be the main piano player at our church for a long time, and then we had a guy join our church who was a concert pianist, and he was an astonishing player. And, 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 and this kid watched me for a few months when he joined our church, and I'd be setting up the piano for him or announcing him or congratulating him, and he said, I've been watching you because I wondered how you'd react to this guy because he's heaps better than you. <laughs> I said, absolutely, he is. He, he, he thought it was, he, he just knew. There was something in him saying that. He was instinctively knew. It's hard to honour someone who's better at the thing that you do or you're known for. It's actually, it's, it's a challenge. It's confronting, isn't it? But you see, when your life has been intersected by God's forgiveness, this gift of love you didn't deserve, there's something you just can't keep doing. That's one of them. You actually don't need it the way you used to. 
And so can we just be so just honest for a moment and recognize the, the world desperately needs the gospel, doesn't it? Our world is actually raging out of control in war, in violence, in anger. Imagine what God sees on this planet every single second. Imagine the blood spilt that he gets to see, the racism that he, get, that he knows fully about, not just in us, around the globe. We are a peculiar species. We're the species that captured light and fire. We're the only species who's been able to convert human sound into invisible waves and pump them through things like radios and TVs. We're extraordinary. We invented pizza. We'll probably pay for that, but we did. Space travel, harness solar power, nuclear power. Of all the advanced things we've done, we still haven't worked out how to create world peace. The world is waging at war because it's at war within itself. The gospel is the only thing that can deal with the hostility that's real inside of the human heart. So this is very important to notice. What God wants to do is to free us from the things that enslave us. So what this means is if, if Jesus has come into your life, although you are fitted, cemented to other people who know Jesus... You don't actually look the same. I love that we're not all wearing the same stuff. Because all those other factors in your identity, they're still true. If you're Indian, you you can stay Indian. You don't have to become European. If you're African, you don't have to become Latino or Australian. If if you're an artist, you can still be an artist or a a songwriter, a dancer, a musician, a, a cook. It doesn't matter. I hope you notice what's happened when Jesus comes into your life all those other factors in your identity have been demoted. So if you're a violinist, you're just a violinist. If you make money, well, it's just money. In fact, it's something you could probably give away now because it doesn't provide your identity anymore. It's an astonishing thing. And so Jesus has paved the way for a new way to live. Just consider the, the, the obvious powerful fact of the way he treated us when he came to earth. We're told that God came into human history through the person of Jesus. I don't know if you thought about this. There's actually only one inferior race. It's a human race. I think you'll all agree that the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, superior race, right there. (laughs) Unending, perfect, holy. That's a superior race. But when Jesus came to earth, he, he didn't treat us like we're inferior. Hebrews chapter 2 says he wasn't ashamed to call us brothers. See, God is offering a way of life that is profoundly different to the way we usually track, the way we usually live. So I'm just going to declare to you in these last few minutes that I believe the movement Jesus started is the greatest movement the world's ever known. It's the only thing that can change the human heart and the possibilities for people. And it's why I'm committed to it. Because I think it's more important, not because I can't do other stuff, but it's more important than all the other stuff I can do. So please don't forget the importance of the church. It is God's intention for the world. The possibilities of connection and strength and love inside the family of God, the way you've just heard, is seen nowhere else. 
that people can have oneness here inside the church that they can't have without God's help. It proves God's real. It's astonishing. So God's strategy for you to escape the hostility, the raging, the violence is a new life you can have in his son. If you don't believe Jesus is the hope of the world, what hope is there? Who's going to help anyone if you don't believe that? I think one of the profound things for me, when you read any of these letters in the New Testament, they're titled by the cities that they're written to. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, Rome. Jesus had this ability to think in the macro and the micro. I love it. So he, he said to 120 of his followers before he left the earth, he said, you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, the place you forgot, Samaria, the place you hate, and his macro, the ends of the earth. It's awesome what he says. You're going to be my witness from these places, this place, and then the ends of the earth straight away. No internet, <laughs> no airplanes. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. But notice Jesus' micro. The smallest unit he uses there is a city. Most of us as Christians think far too small. God's dreams are bigger than ours. We usually think about me and my world. I read the Bible as though I'm the church, (laughs) individually. (laughs) I wonder about what God's going to do to me and maybe my neighbour Fred and his family. But do I really understand Jesus' unit, although there's no human life that he ignores or doesn't see or doesn't care about, doesn't matter to him, but his smallest unit for us is the city. What if we decided that it mattered more to think about what's happening to the 5.23 million people in the city of Sydney or 150,000-odd in the MacArthur area? People who God intended, his desire is that they do not perish, but they know him. We're often a bunch of individuals turning up in church rather than a tribe that's become the church. The powerful thing about this book is it it says, for us to step into the reality of what God has talked about here, is that we become, what's already true about us, we become who we already are, that we maintain the unity of the spirit, the unity that's already given to you if you're a Christian. This is not like you have to achieve it, you just have to actually become what it already is. And probably the last challenge I have for you, I think we've got to understand publicly that The church has been damaged in its reputation. I I caught a number of Ubers last week because of car repairs and stuff, and one of the guys, I I say what I do in different ways to people, and, you know, we talk for two, three minutes, and he says, so what do you do? And I said, this time, I'm a pastor of a church. That's a good way to kill a conversation. It's like I said, I'm a cannibal, and it's lunchtime. (laughs) It's a great, great line. (laughs) I'm a pastor of a church. Things are that bad. I just have to say I'm a pastor of a church. Conversation dead. People don't believe in God because the church has been untrustworthy. That's why there's been a royal commission into the abuse of kids. The church is meant to be the people who have been changed by the love of Jesus and committed to making sure every human being knows they're loved by Jesus. For too long, the church has been seen as a group that are bonded by judgmentalism, condemnation, by arrogance, motivated by guilt and shame. 
The world sees us more clearly when we gather, when we work together, operate together. So I want to say that we need to improve the reputation of Jesus by improving the reputation of the church. Paul, who wrote this letter, and many others in the New Testament, was convinced, though the reputation of Jesus and the reputation of the church are interconnected. He said, the last verse of chapter 1, he said, you're the body of Jesus, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What a statement. Chapter 3 says, he'll do more than you could ask or dream or imagine. According to his power that works within us. He said, glory to God in every age in the church. (laughs) Paul is hopeful. Paul's convinced. The reputation of God will be seen clearly through what he does in the church. Despite the fact that it's a bad word at the moment. But it's also a beautiful word. So you know when animals gather, there's names for them. So if you get a bunch of lions, they're called a pride. You get a bunch of owls, they're called a parliament. Because ours are very British. You get a bunch of sheep, they're called a flock. A bunch of, you know, um, vultures are, are a committee. Explains everything. And, and the flamingos are called a flamboyant. That explains Christian TV. Um, but you see, what will people say about us when we gather? You know, when someone says, I love the church, I, lo- I love God, I love people, but I hate the church. It's like you're saying, I love lions, but I hate the prides. I love flamingos, but I hate the flamboyants. Some people say, oh, it's me and God. It's cool. It's just me and God. Don't need the church. Don't need people. It's just me and God. I'd say you haven't met God because God is not that self-indulgent. The church is more important than what we usually realize. So I guess my challenge to all of you who are followers of Christ, what if you based your reputation on what other people say about Jesus because of you? What if we based our reputation as a church on what other people say about us, Jesus, because of us? And some of you might go, well, I don't think anyone says bad things about Jesus because of me. But the question is, do do people say anything about Jesus because of you? Do people say anything about Jesus because of us? Is Jesus' reputation and your reputation actually connected or not? See, Jesus was happy to have his reputation affected by your choices. And the obvious response needs to be that we decide to affect Jesus' reputation by our choices. See, Jesus is willing to destroy his reputation on your behalf. He was willing to have other people say terrible things about him because of his association to you and me. Because the obvious thing to me is what are you going to do about that? That's the end of the talk. The implication is what are we going to do? For some of you, followers of Christ, you need to catch up, get together and begin a friendship with another Christian who is as different to you as possible. (laughs) From another culture, another type of, maybe another generation and become good friends and it'll be like you're visiting another country. It's, It's amazing what can happen when you connect to people who are different from you but connected to Jesus. There's so many applications of this. So the question is left for us, what are we going to do? I'm going to invite the band to come up. You guys come and prepare to, to lead us in song and I'm going to pray. And um, So for the next two weeks, we're going to be thinking about what it means to be connected to the movement of God.
what it means to be connected to the church and the possibilities of your life with God. Father, we thank you that you're real. We thank you that um, all of us are here tonight. We ask that you would help us consider where we are in relationship to you and other people. We ask that anyone here who, 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 who has that sense in their gut that you're real, that you are here, but their mind's trying to catch up. Lord, I ask that you would help them, that you would grant faith where there is doubt. I thank you that that you actually surpass anything someone can can create, anything that we can uh, put together here in a service, Lord. I thank you that you're actually real. I ask God that you would speak to us so in such a real way that you are undeniable. And I ask that you would help us to, to translate that into how we live. I thank you, God, that, that there's a picture here that you, you've created us for that is so incredibly hopeful and moves every one of us from where we are to a better place. So, God, I ask that you would move us, that you would help change some of the realities of our week-by-week living. We ask, God, that you would do that uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.